recording. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another Baseball America podcast. I'm Kyle Glazer alongside Hudson Belinsky and Carlos Colazzo. Thank you for tuning in to today's BA podcast. Our podcast is sponsored by Baseballism. Baseballism is the official off-the-field brand of baseball, offering apparel for men, women, and kids. Looking for that perfect Father's Day gift or maybe something special for that recent graduate? Visit Baseballism.com and enter the code BA2017 to receive free shipping on your next order. Guys, the draft is coming up in less than a week. Obviously, the BA500 dropped yesterday. We've got scouting reports on all 500 players now up on our website, BA.com. Look, we all know about Hunter Green. We all know about Brendan McKay. We all know about J.B. Bukowskis and Royce Lewis. We know about the big dogs. We've talked about the big dogs. But every year, there's guys who are drafted in the 8th, 9th, 10th, 20th rounds who four or five years later, they're in the big leagues. So I want to talk to you a little bit about some of the guys that we all think have a chance to maybe be a surprise guy, a guy that, for whatever reason, is not considered a prime draft prospect right now. But as you move forward in his career, you really want to keep an eye on him. Carlos, I want to start with you. You got a good look at guys at the National High School Invitational. I know a couple guys uh, really stood out to you there. Who's your personal uh, late-round cheese ball, if you will? Yeah, well, I guess the first guy I have to start out with is Carlos Morales. I chose him just because he has my first name. Uh, <laughs> no, he's a pitcher, spells it with a K, which is, is nice for a pitcher. Uh, he's a lanky lefty out of South Hills in uh, West Covina, California. And I think I saw his first game uh, in a national high school invitational, like you said. And, and during that game, he was effectively wild the whole time, pretty much, is what I saw. But he's got really good playing on his fastball. Um, I think the one big knock on him right now is that his curveball is not very consistent. When I saw it, he had uh, he struggled at times getting on top of that pitch regularly, but he did flash it a couple times. And when he gets on top of it, it has a really sharp bite. Uh, I think he only allowed two hits during that entire outing, complete game for him. And he also flashed some uh, some talent on the offensive side. But I think teams are definitely looking at him on the mound. Uh, he's a really interesting pitcher. He, he's got to clean up some of these off speed pitches uh, but no he was, he was a good look for me one of the, the more interesting guys I saw right away in that tournament for those of you who don't know uh, Carlos and Hudson really took the lead on our draft stuff this year um, but I helped out in Southern California just being where I'm from if you listen to our podcast you know I drop a SoCal homeboy reference every chance I get so here's this one uh, but talking to scouts about Morales it was interesting what you mentioned how he is this big lanky left-hander mm-hmm that has a lot of things people like, but that athleticism he should on the other side of the ball, a couple people actually like him as an outfielder. Yeah. I mean, when you see a guy who's that talented that can impact the ball on both sides as a prep, it's really promising. You mentioned the curveball. The velocity on it was also down a little bit. You want to see more there. There's some mechanical flaws teams and scouts have talked about, but when you talk about, like I said, athletic, left-handed, good body, mm-hmm. plays at a really good program, has had success at a really good program, He's definitely a guy that, that's interesting. And, and that's the thing. When you, you think about these guys from a value perspective and who are the big leaguers that are going to be later in the draft, you know, you know, on your list you should always have left-handers, especially athletic ones. If they throw strikes, if they have got velocity, if they can spin the ball at all, they should be on your list. And Carlos Morales, maybe not the most consistent guy right now on the mound, but you're talking about a potential impactful lefty um, on the mound, a guy who's got – some got a loose arm who's got a pretty good pretty efficient arm action pretty short arm stroke you know looks like he has the athleticism to eventually develop into a strike thrower there's some spin on that breaking ball he doesn't quite get to it 
as often as you'd like, but definitely an exciting one. And I think that if you look up and down our list, you can find a lot of lefties on there for, for similar reasons. Mm -hmm. Hudson, moving over to you now, who's one of your guys that you see and, and you think has a good chance to be a value pick you know, in later rounds that you could see rise above maybe his draft status? Yeah, that's an interesting one. That I mean, I'm sticking with the, the lefty theme um, on, on the BA 500. You can check out the report on Hugh Fisher, who's number 327. He's a lefty out of uh, Memphis area, um, committed to Vanderbilt. This is what they look like when they're in high school. He's like 6'5", 200-ish pounds, maybe a little bit less than that. Really, really good-looking athlete, body. Um, same kind of deal. You're, you're looking for somebody who can, can be a little bit more consistent with the breaking ball. But in terms of his physical projection, right now he's pitching with a, an average-type fastball. You can really dream on this guy pitching with a plus fastball. He's going to go to Vanderbilt. You know, Vanderbilt's track record, obviously, of developing players like that. We see it with Kyle Wright this year, who's got a chance to be the first overall pick in the draft. Had interest in high school. Didn't get a ton of interest. Goes to campus and develops three years later. Now he's a potential first overall pick. So uh, I think Hugh Fisher, not saying he's necessarily going to be that, but he's got that kind of upside. And you can dream on a guy who's, who's got the, those kinds of tools. Absolutely. You know, I'm going to go away a little bit from, we talk about what's the traditional demographic we see it. Uh, you mentioned left-handers. Another demographic sometimes you see is crazy good defenders. Think about like Kevin Pillar, Kevin Kiermaier, 19th round, 32nd round, uh, able to go and just have that center field defense carry them. Not even, I'm even going to go away from that a little bit. And there's a guy out at Orange Coast College, uh, a very good JC program in Southern California I, I like a lot, named Eric Wagaman. Big, strong, physical, so right-handed hitting, college first baseman. It's not the greatest demographic in the world. There's no question about it. But with him, I see a guy who's played, played Aliso Miguel High School, was part of a team that made it to a championship game with Blake Sable and Kyle Molnar. He's, he's played with the big dogs at every level. He's been a stud with the big dogs at every level throughout Southern California. And you look what he did this year at the uh, California JC level, among the state leaders in home runs, slugging percentage. But he's not just this big hulking slugger who can't move he's well built he's strong all across his body even though he's not going to flash you the greatest run times as an athlete the swing is plenty quick and athletic in the box i think there's a lot there and you see a guy who has maybe that carrying tool and for me eric wagaman's power should play we're going to find out because california junior college baseball this year the pitching was not as good as it has been some other years so he wasn't totally challenged but talking to scouts who have seen him they think he has all the components to be successful against those 92s, 93s, 94s. And sometimes when you have that carrying tool and its power, someone will find a spot for you. Absolutely. And you think about it, Wagaman, number 386 on, on the BA 500. When you're talking about that point in the draft, there aren't, you know, we're always looking for guys who have plus tools across the board and are, are going to be face of the franchise type guys. And then the later, lower we get, the fewer tools we can find and so you have to take chances later in the draft and, and, and a guy who's got some potential for for a carrying tool like that offensively you take a shot on that kind of guy because if it does translate then boom you've got something that's a lot more valuable than where you took that player right you know yeah, at that point even if he's a platoon power hitting bench first baseman at 386 in the draft that's what 12th rounder you'll take it that's a that's a pretty good ball player yeah and, and i think that's that's a that brings us into another point, which 
there are players in this this ranking you will see who are in the 200s who are going to be drafted in the 38th round. Right. And and the these rankings don't consider signability. They don't. We don't care if you know some of these guys are going to go to college and be guys later for the draft. Our goal is to rank the players in terms of talent, and that that's where this list goes. We rank. We're trying to rank players on talent from one to five hundred. And so you'll see high school guys that are going to go way later. You'll see college guys that are going to go way earlier than they're ranked. And, you know, so the, those are considerations. When you're reading this list, us saying, you know, Eric Wagaman's number 386 on the list doesn't mean we think he's going to go 386th overall. This isn't a top 500 mock. <laughs> That'd be impressive. <laughs> That's for sure. So as we talked about these sleepers, you guys brought up two high schoolers. I brought up a JC guy. But part of a project I'm doing right now actually looks at you know some of the who are the big leaguers and it really is overwhelming college guys four-year college guys you see that every position who are some of the guys at four-year universities you guys each see as maybe a, a late round sleeper type yeah i mean well there's there's a couple ways to look at that well all those guys started off as high school guys for, this first is true. For, which this is, is true. which is my defendant defense of signing out of high school um but they're the you know if we want to talk about some some guys who are who are later on uh, just scanning through our list, we're looking at college guys. I think Zach Kirtley is a pretty interesting one from from St. Mary's, and and you, big fan. Yeah, I mean Zach Kirtley coming in, or, or if you saw him on the right day in the Cape League last summer, you saw a player with a really quick bat and some feel to hit, and you know some look like there's some power potential untapped in that bat still. Um, maybe not quite living up to that this spring, uh, for for at least for the scouts that I talked to about him. I don't know exactly what his performance was, but um, you know he's a guy who we have him number three eighteen on the BA five hundred right now. Who six months from now might be much better than, than a lot of the players who are ranked ahead of him. You don't know if he's going to turn it around, but if he can get some of that that previous cachet back, you might have something a, a nice value pick there. And if I can jump in, I, I had the fortune of covering currently in high school. My old job, you know, he's another guy you talk about. Who are the guys who have been successful playing the big dogs at every level? He went to Red Lindsay's Valley High School, home of Tyler Chatwood, Matt Andres. I mean, division, you know, upper division, Southern California, creme de la creme program. He was the stud, the guy on his team. Goes to St. Mary's, a really good underrated program, I think, um, in the western half of the United States. Puts up, you know, a really nice career starting from day one. So I think it's not just almost, you know, oh, well, here's his tools. It's the track record. Who are the guys who have been good every time they've had to face the best competition they can and they've performed? And I do think he, he checks those boxes, for me at least. One of the guys that, that I'm kind of thinking of right now is Marty Costas. He's a uh, draft-eligible sophomore out of Maryland. Very you talk cool. about the guys who have, who have got that track record and who have done nothing for, but perform. Uh, Costas is a guy who's performed really at every point in his career. Uh, his two seasons with Maryland, he's hit. Uh, he's done well with wood bats in the summer. He's got that track record to go for him. Uh, he's hit for power in the wood bat leagues as well. Uh, the one question with Costas well, is where's a Ripken league? Yeah, yeah, he was. And, and where's where's he going to play at the next level? It's a big question for him. But you think about uh, all the people who complain about the lack of college bats uh, in the draft. He's a guy that I mean, he's done nothing but hit. Uh, you you have to wonder where he's going to play, and that's obviously his maybe why he's. 208 for us in this in this uh, top 500. Yeah, I think it's a great point, and and you know, you look at the the guy. Um, and I'm not saying this is a, a direct comparison mm -hmm. uh, because you're you're talking about a different body type and mm -hmm. different swing and all that. But Willie Calhoun is a guy we talked about. 
for the top 100, just the top 100 prospects, uh, you know, guys in the minor leagues right now. In the, in the offseason, in the wintertime, this is a guy we talked about in that context. And, and the discussion on Willie Calhoun as well, where is he going to play, where is he going to play? He can hit. And if you can hit, they're going to find a spot mm-hmm. for you. And Marty Costas, this guy's stout-bodied. He's, you know, everybody's afraid to love him because he's not this yep. sexy defensive profile and he's not a five-tool guy. Five nine, two hundred. Well, guess guy. what? When we're talking about the two hundreds, we're not going to find five-tool guys. We're going to find guys who can do a couple things well. And if you can hit and you have some power like he does, they're going to find a place for you to play. So. I, I, I think yeah. that's a great call no, on, last on Marty Costas. Last summer he hit 319, 437, 560 with seven home runs in the, the Cal Ripken Collegiate League. So. Yeah, I mean, and he, he's, he's also a draft-eligible sophomore, so he's, he's going to have some leverage from a draft perspective. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure exactly what he's looking for signability-wise, but again, this is a guy with maybe not the sexiest tools mm-hmm. all around, but it's a pretty sexy bat. Yep. I mean, and, and the guy's got quick hands, he's got some power potential. You see this, like, he's probably 5'10", just... I don't have that in front of me, but just sizing him up, I would I would look at him and be like, he's probably five ten, two twenty, something like that, kind of a a thicker, dumpier bodied guy, mm-hmm. but it plays. Yep. And he's got quick hands. He shows power, raw power in batting practice. Checks the boxes offensively for sure. Yeah, on my end, and again, I apologize. I have to keep going back to Southern California. That was, <laughs> no, just, that no. was just my draft area. Yeah, so that's, that's what, what I know. Do it. So who who do you like I mean, in, in the Ramsey Romano, at Long yeah. Beach State? This is a guy who has been. First of all, he went started at Michigan. Was a two sport guy. He was a backup quarterback under Jim Harbaugh on the football team, while also being a baseball player. Started Michigan as a freshman. Bounced back to Yavapai JC. Led Yavapai to a national championship. Shows up at Long Beach State and is their cleanup hitter. Leading that team, helping get that team to the first Big West Championship since 2008. They're now in the Super Regionals. This is a guy who's a really good athlete with really good baseball instincts, who's hit, he can play third base, he has the athleticism to play second. Again, just a guy who you talk about the intangibles, the guys who have all the little things that add up to a really good player, even if there's no 70 grade tool there. I think Ramsey Romano has a lot of those. How about how about another guy in your area? This is a guy that we brought up early in the season because he got off to like a torrid start. Is Tyler Atkinson at uh, San Diego State? I think he's a guy that scouts would say that he doesn't have a carrying tool. He doesn't have anything that really jumps out at you, but he has absolutely mashed this season. What's funny about Tyler Atkinson is you talk about unconventional profiles, mm-hmm. undersized, big power, no run, no defend, left field only. Sounds at, a lot like Marty Costas. You know, it's sort of. A, <laughs> I think Marty Costas is a little bit better than Atkinson, but but <laughs> yeah. you know, it's something where there's no question. This is a guy who you know he kind of got thrown off the radar because he took a pitch off his face and mm-hmm. missed all 2015. Comes back 2016 and you know it's fine, but it's not great. But this year, I don't know if he just got confidence back in the box or whatever. Everyone talks about you know that short, quick swing mm-hmm. that he generates tremendous leverage through. I mean talk to some scouts there's one or two home runs they still talk about and chuckle like man he hit the heck out of that ball out of this five i mean five nine five ten frames so i mean talk about short swings that play that'll catch up to velocity i mean maybe, and, maybe. and that's that's another that's a great point because that's another projection point for 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 scouts who are looking at these players we, we look at High contact rate guys, or guys who have short strokes, who actually can generate some bat speed, can accelerate with the bat, and, and can generate future power. So you, you think about it. The the example I always go to uh, of a player, not not someone who I evaluated personally, but just following the narrative of it, is Ben Zobrist. 
Ben Zobrist is a guy early in his, his major league career who's a, a short swing kind of guy who's going to work the gaps, and that's going to be his game. He realized he needs to hit for more power. He adds some more pre-pitch movement to his swing. He, he, he deepens his load, and all of a sudden, we've got a 30-homer guy. So these, you, we kind of break down these college guys and we say, well, they don't hit for enough power. We don't, they, don't, they don't look the part. We need guys who are going to hit 30 bombs in the big leagues. This guy's not going to do that. And then what happens is you take these short swing guys, you add some length. As long as they've got some rhythm, they've got some loose wrists, they've got feel to hit, and you, you, you trade a little bit of that contact for some power. And I think a good example of that last year in the draft was Nick Solak. Nick Solak was a guy who, with, with a metal bat, would hit these little squeakers over the fence, right, like barely clear them. And then now I'm texting with guys who are, who are watching him, I guess he's in the Florida State League, and they're like, who's this dude hitting opposite field bombs? Like... You know, he goes from being a high-contact college hitter in a, in a good conference to being a power hitter at the pro level. So when you talk about Atkinson that way, absolutely. Paven Smith, an early draft guy who, who kind of fits that, that mold a little bit. Not a ton of uh, strikeouts, but really good contact rate and, and some untapped power possibly in there. When you look at projecting power in the future, I guess from a scouting standpoint, where do, uh, what do teams think about as far as your track record in a wood bat league? How important is that? Uh, at least as far as showing that in the past versus guys who have hit for power with, with metal bats but haven't shown that in the wood, in the wood bat I mean, leagues. Does that make a big difference for I, scouts? I think it makes a huge difference. Yeah. And, and when we have guys like like Kyle Lewis, um, Mariners first-round pick last year, where on the Cape people are saying, hey, this guy, the ball comes off his bat like Vlad Guerrero with a wood bat. Mm-hmm. And it almost at that point – you can you, you can only fall so much so far if you're you're doing that kind of thing with a wood bat in the Cape Cod League, um, or or on the summer showcase circuit for a high school guy who who's hitting with wood against good pitching. The what you're really looking for is somebody who's shown power with wood and is going in the right direction. But you also you're looking for swing elements. Who's got fluidity in their swing? Who can hit the ball with authority to the opposite field? These are all the traits that you're recognize spin. You know, there's there's those elements of just seeing the ball and having an approach. And you know, if you if you're going to go, your approach is to go after the outside the pitch middle away and drive it to the opposite field with authority. And you can do that. And you can get your hands moving at full speed and hit an opposite field line drive. And that's your that's your job in college baseball. And you get it done. To me, that's an indicator of future power. I see. J.J. Matajevic, who I wrote about last week at Arizona, is a guy like this who's who's been described as like an inside-out hitter, who's who's loose, head-over-power type guy. Well, right now, what's his job? His his job is to get on base, to do damage, to hit doubles, to work the gaps, and, and so when he gets pitched middle away, and he's able to stay back and get his hands going at full speed and hit screamers to left center. What does that tell you is in there? It tells you there's natural timing. It tells you there's bat speed. That's what you need to have power. You need you need timing and you need bat speed. No, no question. Another interesting sort of late round guy that people can overlook sometimes is the injured guy. We see every couple of years a guy who their junior senior year, you know, high school, college, whatever, shortened by an injury. They drop a little bit, but you know they get healthy and all of a sudden there's some good things there. Are there any of those guys for you in this list, a guy who was limited by injury this year, but you know you can see the scenario in which they, they get healthy and then you know maybe have a chance to outperform some of, uh, some of their rankings? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think Nick Storrs um, from New York City. Um, 
fits that profile a little bit. Not necessarily, a, not, not a totally injured guy, but had experienced a little bit of a dead arm this spring. Um, did come back at the end, you know, velocity was never this spring where it had been in the past. Um, you know, so he's, he's kind of a guy you're hoping to take, give him some rest, you know, let him get get a little bit stronger. I mean, he's huge. He's very he's pretty dang strong right now. This kid's. I mean, it's. I think I wrote in my report on him. It's like a Gronkowski body comp. Um, <laughs> but but so you you're gonna want to with him. You're gonna want to add a little bit more strength and maybe a little more stability and, and, and flexibility and looseness to his delivery. But um, you know, he, he dead arm. This is a guy who was 93, 95 at East Coast Pro less than a year ago with a pretty good breaking ball and strike throwing ability. So the dead arm, 87, 91 this spring, not what you were looking for. Um, I think that the the high school right-hander category, um, it's always a risky demographic, obviously. It's, it's the riskiest one, really, that and high school catching. But um, you look at guys like Hunter Root. Um, Hunter Root, who was trending towards potentially the first round uh, early in the season, ended up needing Tommy John surgery and, and you know, is, is out. Um, you have, but he was 97 with a plus slider, and he's he's committed to Florida. But I, I do think there's enough interest in him where somebody's going to take him in the third third or fourth round and, and overpay him, and, and he's going to do his rehab and pro ball. But not, not that that's any certainty with with how the board's going to play. But I think that's a possibility for him. Carlos, were there any injured guys? Yeah, that, no, that stick out for you. Another guy. He's he's higher up the board than some of the guys we've been talking about. But Joe Perez is another. Florida righty who's got a lot of premium stuff, uh, but we actually just reported that he went down with a ulnar, he tore his UCL, has to have Tommy John surgery, so he's going to be out for a while. He's committed to Miami, uh, and Perez is interesting in general. I know we've talked about him a little bit more than some of these other guys, so mm -hmm. I don't know how long we want to talk about him just to get some other guys in there, but no, he's got really premium stuff, uh, maybe some of the best raw stuff in the class as far as prep pitchers go, but he's only pitched for like two years now, mm -hmm. uh, so... Scouts are worried about whether he's a starter or a lever in the future, whether he can kind of get some more consistency with this breaking ball and his off-speed stuff. And he's really hit better, better than he's pitched this season. Uh, he dealt with some shoulder tendonitis, I know, earlier this spring. So he's just an interesting guy in general, but that, yeah, that Tommy John surgery will kind of throw things up in the air a little bit. I think he's a, he's a good example of a player to talk about. Like With this two-way theme of mm -hmm. the class, we have – we have so many two-way prospects in this class, college and high school, and it's it's important to remember how hard that is to mm -hmm. do. I think and it's easy to kind of it, forget it, about how difficult that is to do. And it's easy season. because these guys are making it look easy, mm -hmm. and and that's that's what's really astonishing about it. Whether it's Adam Hazley or uh, Hagen Danner, Brendan McKay, the, these guys who are who have been thought of at the top of the class, or these guys who are later on guys, um, who's the the uh, Emerson Hancock down mm -hmm. in, in Cairo, Georgia, South Georgia, near the Panhandle, middle of uh, middle of nowhere, basically, is what from what I was told. But this guy would play shortstop in game one of the doubleheader, and then go pitch game two of the doubleheader. And so, and Joe's the guy who played third base for his and team. Joe, Joe Perez plays third third base, and you got to make a lot of throws at third base. Mm -hmm. You're not. He's not easing up over there. We saw him in the NHS. No, I mean, he's probably throwing 97 mile an hour bullets <laughs> to first base through Alex Terrell's glove. Yeah. Like it's, you know, he, he can get some carry on that ball at third base. But he's going to be an interesting situation because yeah, we'll see if a team does still have interest and tries to, to make a shot, uh, make a run at him in the draft. But if not, he's it, it sounds like he's going to be ready to 
to DH at Miami as a freshman, so he's got a chance to play right away. Uh, probably wouldn't pitch in his freshman year if he went, um, but comes could come back and be an impactful yeah. relief arm. And I think that's ultimately with a guy like Perez, which you're probably expecting, is, is a guy who's who's going to end up in the bullpen and, and throw gas. He might be upper 90s with a plus slider. Um, you know that that's kind of the dream scenario for mm-hmm. him. But you know you can't deny what he's done with the bat and, and the power potential there either. One one other guy that you know had an injury that I do think is interesting is Cameron Bishop at UC Irvine. This is a guy, you know, 6'4", 235 pound left hander, fastball up to ninety five. You know, command has been a little shaky, but you talk about big body, power arm. He was drafted out of high school, pitched you know decently well for a, a really good program at UC Irvine. Uh, suffered an oblique injury two days before opening day, cost him the season. But there was still a sense, you know, talking to, to various evaluators around the game that a left-handed arm that's that explosive, mm-hmm. that is collegiate, that is on a good body, that has a performance track record, isn't going to fall too far. So whereas before there was talk, you know, if he had a big season, he could go as high as second or third round. Mm-hmm. Now it's obviously much lower, but it's still top ten rounds consideration for a guy who didn't throw a single collegiate inning this year. So I think he's an interesting guy for me. Now maybe he, you know, test teams get the medicals. There's more they see they don't like. I have heard some teams say they think he's actually gonna maybe just medical redshirt and go back to school. There's a Scott Boris consideration there. There's a Boris client as well. So there's a couple different ways this can play out with him. But I think purely on just the talent, the stuff, the body, there's enough interest there. And you know, if someone pops him in the seventh round and offers him some big money, you never know. He's just an interesting guy to me. You know, it's, it sort of reminds me of last year we had we had Will Crow in a similar kind of situation. And I remember seeing Will Crow as a sophomore. And I go in and watch South Carolina against Kentucky. And, and this guy's pumping mid-90s, pitching off of this fastball, showing this hard hammer-breaking ball. And he gets injured in the middle of his – middle toward, to the end of his, his sophomore year there. He ends up coming back just in time. You know, he's, he's, he's healthy just in time for the end of his junior season, but he doesn't pitch for South Carolina. He pitches in the Coastal Plains League. He makes a few starts there, so he maintains his medical redshirt, um, was asking for, for big money, and comes back, and he's, he's, he's earned it. I mean, he pitched fairly well early in the season. He was trending towards the first round. It kind of tapered off a little bit towards the end. But, but that shows you what's, what's in there with some of these, these injured players sure they're risky they're gonna be risky they're hurt it's, it's not it's not an easy thing it's no guarantee to come back from an injury but if they do come back you it's, it's again it's this value pick kind of situation where you might be able to get them with a later pick you might still have to pay them you might still have to pay them more money with, with a later round pick go over slot something like that but you might end up with a really nice player and you know, you, there's a significantly less opportunity cost when you use a 14th round pick on one of these guys because if you get it done, great. If you don't get it done, fine. You you know you you're, you're gonna get all the players you need to fill out your short season league teams in the 20th to 40th round, anyways. So I, I think that's a that's a great point, and um, it, it's interesting now. You know, we've seen sort of this explosion of Tommy Johns, unfortunately. Um, and it's interesting how many guys there are who have already had Tommy John mm-hmm. and are back from Tommy John. Like, there's probably five to ten guys in our 500 who are Tommy John survivors and are throwing mid 90s again. 
Yeah. I've got a couple of them on my state list too. I mean, even beyond just the 500, you, you see these guys. And, you know, that's one of those things. Uh, I think it was last year, Billy Gasparino, the Dodgers scouting director, on a conference call with reporters, uh, when people were asking about, you know, the Tommy John thing, he made a comment like, well, everyone's had Tommy John now. I mean, obviously he was, you know, exaggerating, but you get the point that for a lot of these teams now, it's become common enough that they almost don't blink, which... Yeah, I mean, the Braves have made a strategy of targeting Tommy John guys just so they can get guys for some value. So mm-hmm. you definitely see it happening. Mm-hmm. And it, it is crazy, though, and and it it bothers me. Like, when... when I mean, Evan Steele the other night, who's lefty out of Chipola, and Chipola's that coaching staff has done a great job there. They're going to have maybe a dozen guys drafted this year. But this guy missed time earlier in the year with a blood clot, and... You know, slowly worked back. His stuff was recovering and recovering, and he's pitched really well down the stretch. And then he goes and throws 140 something pitches in the JUCO World yeah, Series. Yeah, that was a little. Uh, that that was mean, not great. I mean, there are so many issues I have with that. I mean, that's well, I mean, blood clot's a whole different animal too. That I mean, I mean, Tommy John's bad, but overuse in general. I, I think that we can do better as a game we can do better we don't we don't need to force kids to do that for for the glory of these moments i, I mean I, I but i do think that going to going to go in a totally different direction and escape the draft conversation for a second here and talk about Duran O'Linger. Duran O'Linger. I was about to ask you we, about we that. we got to get, get yeah. Duran in, in during this conversation. I watched, I watched him on Friday in, in Chapel Hill. Obviously, Davidson uh, upset the number two national seed North Carolina team this weekend, if you didn't know. But Duran's throwing something like 300 pitches the last two weeks uh, in his conference tournament and then the regional. He started on Friday and then threw two innings. It seems Sunday. like he's working up to eventually throw like 400 pitches yeah. this coming weekend. You know, it's an interesting consideration because he's a guy that is going to pharmacy school in the fall. He's not a prospect. So in a lot of ways, this is it for him. And this he's is, admitted that he's not going. Right. This he's is admitted the, he's not a prospect. So it's so. sort of that interesting kind of dynamic of what you're willing to do when you know this is the end of your career versus a guy like an Evan Steele who there is a pro future there and how you kind of balance that. And I think it, it's been yeah, an interesting and it, debate. And it, it's, there's a lot to be said for, for glory at, at the, the level, the, the amateur level. That, that, that matters. That's, that's not nothing. Um, but when, you're, when you think about a guy whose career is going to be over, you, know, you still do risk your, your personal health, you know, you know, as far as you know, just talking to some players who have had Tommy John and either been out of college baseball afterwards or have been cut from from their teams or transferred, my understanding is that most insurance policies will only cover you until you can pick, you can lift a, a gallon uh, of milk, and and that's basically their their standard for okay, your arm's healthy now. Mm-hmm. And after that, if you want to do further rehab and then build back real strength to eventually hold your kid up in the air above your head, your head, you know, things like that, you're kind of on your own. So there are, those are risks. Uh, obviously you're going to, you're going to take risks whenever you're, you're out there throwing a ball, even mid eighties. Um, but I, I, it, I think it's, it's not a, it's not a black and white mm-hmm. uh, discussion when we're talking about somebody who's, whose career might be over tomorrow, you know, and just because they're not good enough to play at the next level rather than somebody whose career is going to be, has the potential to last another decade or 15 years. Really but we, that was the tangent of all tangents. <laughs> that was. We ended up talking about a guy who throws 86, <laughs> who's not going to get drafted, who's 27 years old or whatever he is. And 22, 23. You know, moving back toward the draft, uh, we are going to take some questions. Uh, so uh, we have a couple uh, 
on the various social media platforms. HUD, uh, why don't you give us uh, some of what we've gotten so far? I've got one if you want. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to send out a tweet. Direct gotcha. questions. Yeah, please. I've already got one from uh, John Gilraith on Twitter. We appreciate your question, John. Uh, he asks, what's your take on Logan Chapman? I guess I'll just go ahead and defer to you, Hudson. Yeah, Logan Chapman. Uh, I only saw Logan Chapman pitch once. Um, you know, we trust our sources on him. Um, projectable bodied guy. Um, I believe he's 6'3", 180. Um, you're going to pitch in the upper 80s, low 90s. You know, if you're, you take him, you're projecting him based on uh, the velocity that he's he's going to have in the future, and uh, and also yeah, pretty breaking ball. So. Projection guy, and, and when we talk about projection guys, especially on the high school side, it's really beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Um, you know, it's it's somebody might say, look at that guy and say, I love him in the third round, and somebody might say, well, I love these other ten guys in the third round better. So there's there's that. It, it's always very difficult to predict what's going to happen with those, uh, you know, those those middle rounds kind of guys. And to, to build off that, that's one of the most interesting things for me. Uh, my first year really immersed in the draft process to the level I have been here at Baseball America. Look, everyone knows who the top, you know, 50, 100 guys are. There's no question about it. But really, as soon as you almost hit 150, which is still pretty high in the grand scheme of things, you really start getting some diverging opinions. And especially when it came to the high schoolers, there's guys where it was straight up, he could go in the 10th round to, I have zero interest. I mean, so much of it is that eye of the beholder yeah, and, and 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 it's not just for the twentieth round guys. We're talking about guys, you know, as high as third and fourth rounders. Who you even see that for Joe Adele with some teams. And it's it's amazing. You get on the phone with a the scout. They're like, I think you know uh, Zach Hokuson's got some real real interesting power. I we, I really like this guy. I see good crowds at his game. I think he's going to go pretty good. You pick up the phone. You call somebody else. They're like, oh, I'm not on this guy. And it's like there's so many diverging opinions. And and to we try to rank these players based on the consensus uh, evaluation of them, not necessarily consensus on where they're going. Signability makes that impossible. Mm-hmm. But the consensus evaluation, what if we pulled everyone in, in the industry, what would the opinions be on this player if we put we kind of amalgamated all that together? Right. It's important so, to remember we're reporters reporting what essentially we, the industry consensus is. This isn't like, oh, this is what I necessarily things, see. Yeah. This is we're trying to build a consensus for the industry. Yeah, I mean and and there are some players, you know, in this role, we're going to have uh, we're going to have a conver- we're going to have 10 conversations about those kinds of players, right? No question. Whereas sometimes a scout is going to go see them two or three times and and th- that's going to be their only information on them. So it's not necessarily that we have more information, it's just different information. We have it's like we have a scouting department who's helping us r- rather than an individual who, and, and just one look, one in, one person's take. So we're, we're sort of trying to put that all together and smush it together and make a nice list out of it. But, but so let, I guess let's... That's let's, how the sausage gets made. <laughs> yeah, so let's take a couple more. Um, I got one about the uh, Clemson guys in this range. Clemson obviously has some guys that are going to be well up in the top 200, but um, what about guys like Chase Bender and Alex Eubanks with Clemson? Anything on them? Yeah, um, both are just... They're just good, steady baseball players. Mm-hmm. And Eubanks isn't going to overpower you. Um, you know, going to going to be upper eighties, low nineties. He's he, he's gotten the job done in you know the place where you need to get the job done. And, and everyone get, always needs arms. You need arms. You need guys who compete. So 
Uh, I mean, and, and Pinder, you have a guy who's who's playing center field right now. Got some bloodlines. Older brother having success in the big league level, obviously. Um, you know, so the other one on that team, I mean, Charlie Barnes. Charlie Barnes is. You want to talk about competitor? Uh, this guy's statistically has performed all year. He's gotten some some pretty good hitters out when he's working right. He's got above average fastball movement plus changeup. Going to be upper eighties right now. But you're you're kind of hoping with him you get a little more velocity down the road. He's he's shown low nineties in the past. Um, you know maybe he goes to the bullpen and becomes just a nasty reliever. He does doesn't necessarily have like a an out pitch against lefties. Interestingly enough, because his uh, his breaking ball is kind of like a spinner. It, it kind of you know it's just it's more of a change of pace breaking ball. Mm. Um, and then that change up is just death on um, you know right handed hitters. Uh, so. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the Clemson team, uh, I saw Jeremy Beasley, 92-95 the other night. They got Paul Campbell, who could go later. Um, you know, obviously they have, have Seth Beer for, for next year. We, we're, we're not going to talk about Seth Beer today. <laughs> we're going to have a lot of conversations yeah, about Seth sure. Beer. That's next year's podcast. <laughs> yeah, basically, yeah, we're going to have uh, the, the Seth Beer hour where we're all going to debate Seth Beer for an hour next year. Look forward to that 2018 draft coverage. Um, yeah. So uh, the, the a couple more here, and then we'll we'll look to wrap it up. Um, anything stick out to you, Carlos? Just look at my my Twitter here. Let's see. We've got this is riveting radio here. Huh? <laughs> Us looking at questions. Yeah, Hud, Hud just has so many options. It's amazing. He asks for a couple questions, and then boom, there's thirty responses right right away. People love you, Hud. That's yeah. what it is. I don't know about that, but. Uh, well, at least I got him fooled into to thinking <laughs> that I, I have some answers. Um, so uh, people really just want you to tell them uh, who their favorite team is going to be drafting number one. Exactly, and uh, we'll have mock drafts <laughs> coming. So there, I see. Where do you see Jeter Downs going? Um, Jeter Downs is an interesting one. This is a high school Good name, high school shortstop. But name does come from from Derek Jeter. Um, I'm not sure exactly what the origin story of that is. Michael and Anna reported on that a little bit uh, at the Area Code Games last year. Um, but he is, uh, he's proven himself to be one of the, the better bats in the, the high school class, for many evaluators at least, and he's got a, a chance to play shortstop. Uh, so he's probably going to go in the top 50 picks. I mean, that's, that description goes in the top 50 picks. Uh, you know, I, I think probably somewhere 30 to, to 40, 45, something like that is, is what I've heard mostly on where he'll land. I um, forget where exactly we have him. Um, I know we have scouts split on whether or not he'll stick at shortstop, but I guess for you personally, do you think he's gonna? He's he got the tools. To he's stay got there? elements. He he definitely has the tools to stick there. It's mm-hmm. it, with these young guys, it's really difficult to get a feel for them in the springtime. Like what Jeter Jeff Downs has shown, he's shown flashes of of above average to plus hands. Mm-hmm. He's shown fringy to average range at shortstop. And he's shown like 55 uh, arm strength. Mm-hmm. That's his, his best throw. He's going to give you a 55 arm, right? So, you know, as he matures and becomes a little more consistent, improves his footwork, positions himself better, does this guy have a chance to play shortstop? Yeah, I think he does. The um, the real question, I think, on whether you can play shortstop now in the big leagues might be whether you can hit. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> like, if you can hit, you can play shortstop. <laughs> like, what? Really, both middle infield positions. I mean, one of the things yeah. that we've talked about and that uh, trying not to go too far off the tangent here is 
with the increase in shifting and defensive kind of advanced scouting and how that way it's gone now, there's almost less emphasis than ever before on range because they don't worry about it. We'll position you mm -hmm. where you need to be so you can make the plays you have to. And it's kind of an interesting dynamic, and we're seeing a lot more bulkier, stockier, you know, hit-first guys mm -hmm. playing the middle infield that you never used to see in the 70s and 80s. And some of that is with all the new defensive, defensive metrics and advanced mm -hmm. scouting that goes into it. They just position them a little bit better. And so that step or two short they used to be, they're positioned well enough to make up for it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, and I, I think we, we hear that uh, that on on Jeter Downs a little bit, and we hear it on Tyler Freeman uh, a little bit, the the SoCal shortstop at at, uh, at Awanda High School, who's who's really a bat first prospect. Um, that that's really his his main appeal is, is that if you like him, he can really hit. Um, defensively, you think maybe we we can hide him at shortstop for a little while and. He'll move over to second ultimately. But Generally speaking, second. utility defensive infielder is sort of what I've consistently gotten on him. But you talk mm -hmm. about makeup and instincts, the little things that can make everything play up a little bit. And, you know, he just led Etiwanda to a championship at Dodger Stadium, made really nice defensive plays there, made, you know, a couple nice plays played as well throughout their playoff run. You know, another guy that you just talk about when you have good makeup, you have instincts. You know how to position yourself well, that a lot of times will carry you further than some of the super toolsy guys who at a certain point you have to be able to understand the mental side of the game and what's happening and how to adjust to it. So it's just kind of an interesting dynamic with a guy like him. Yeah. And seeing cause some sometimes those guys adjust. I mean and, 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 and the thing about that kind of stuff is like, you know, for for so long you hear your answers like that, or plays the game the right way, you know, good teammate, all that. And it sounds cliche, and it doesn't sound like it's really impactful. But when you really internalize that and think about what it means to a player on for, on a day to day basis, like this is a conversation I had with with JJ Matajevic when I when I did that story on him. It's his his focus is completely on the team and what the team needs to do, what his teammates need from him as a leader, rather than focusing on his last at bat and the pitch that he should have swung at but didn't. So it, it, it totally changes the, the frame of reference in your mind when you are a good teammate. You're focused on doing the little things right rather than, you know, shifting your focus to with the things that you did wrong, maybe pressing, putting a little too much pressure on yourself, trying to do too much. I'm using all of the cliches here. <laughs> Just got to get out there and execute. Yeah, exactly. Best shape of their lives. <laughs> you, 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 take it day by day. We'll see. <laughs> Not sure who we're going to pitch tomorrow, but, I mean, we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll take a look at the really lineup came, tonight. Really came together. Yeah, yeah. exactly. You know, all, all, all the classics. All of this stuff. I think maybe we'll do one more, and then, uh, we'll, and then wrap we'll, it up. we'll wrap it. I guess, right. did anything... Uh, uh, stick out to you from the questions, Carlos? No, not the questions. There is one guy I kind of want to talk about, though, in uh, North Carolina catcher. I know we've talked about risk and uh, demographics that are risky in the in the draft, and I feel like a high school catcher is is one of the most risky. It is the single risk. Yeah, it's part of the project I'm doing. It is. I mean, high school oh, right-handers, yeah, like at least there's a couple of them mm -hmm. who make it. High school catchers, it's it's really really bad. Yeah. So a guy like Patrick Bailey is, is a catcher who really sticks out to me. I think he could be maybe the best defensive catcher in the class, at least from a uh, prep standpoint. He's a North Carolina State commit. Uh, and we saw him, I believe me and Hudson actually saw him when we went to see Austin Beck. Yeah, obviously one matched of the, up against Austin. Exactly, yeah. and, and the way he sequenced Austin Beck in one of his plate appearances was extremely impressive to me. Um, he's really athletic back there, very balanced, receives the ball really well, and I'm pretty sure he was 
more responsible than the pitcher for striking back out, just with the way he sequenced him working with his pitcher. Yeah, and and I've reported on him a little bit. I wrote a story on him for the magazine. I'm not sure if it ran online or not, but uh, that's the really impressive thing about Patrick Bailey and uh, a few catchers like this. Mm -hmm. Um, They call their own games, and that skill and, and the analytical approach to the game and being able to read swings and also being able to understand analysis of other hitters, opposing hitters, and, and your, your pitcher's strengths and weaknesses, um, and being able to go out there and calm them down and say, hey, man, your, your, your breaking ball's not there. Your fastball's dancing. Let's go throw it. You know, give, giving your pitcher some confidence like that. And you talk to uh, some of the Team USA pitchers that, um, that he was able to catch last summer, and they all love throwing mm-hmm. to him. And it's for exactly reasons like that. And so I think he's he's a little bit of um, an interesting case because he's almost like a college catcher in a lot of ways, um, at least in terms of how he's developed, defend, how, uh, how refined he is mm-hmm. defensively, which is interesting because college catchers right now, like you go to the Abbey League or the, the Pioneer League, you're going to look at your college catcher behind the plate. He's going to be looking over the dugout <laughs> for signs, yeah. and, and he's going to go look in the dugout, and the coach is going to be like, what do you want? Go call a pitch, man. Figure it out. Whereas you have some high school guys who have, who have earned trust back behind the plate from their high school coaches and call their own pitches. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they're going to have to mature as adults and hitters and all that, but they're in some ways they're more ready to roll back there. Um, but on the, on the demographic point of that, we have the high school right-handers, they're risky, sure, but, uh, and this is a story I also wrote that went in the magazine a few months back at the beginning of the season, is they're risky to take at the very top of the draft. There's a lot of supplemental first-rounders who have done really well. Noah Syndergaard, Aaron Sanchez, a lot of those guys taken 30 to 40. Some of them actually have a better track record than the guys taken 1 to 10 by high school right-handers. And and that's because, in talking to scouts for that story, that's because high school right-handed pitchers, or high school pitchers in general, have such a wide range of possibilities, and they can change so quickly. It can be all right, oh, you've, you've only been throwing a two-seamer? All right, let's, let's give you a four-seam. Now there's more velocity. Or nobody taught you how to use your hips a certain way? Okay, let's, let's see what we do if we change this one thing. Um, you need to add 20 pounds? Let's get you in the weight room and, and get, you some, get you some chicken this week, this, this winter, and see how that goes. So there's so many things that can happen with a high school right-hander pitcher that – they're really valuable in, in the second to fifth round, right? Because you can get you can get a handful of good ones. You can get good athletes with projectable bodies, projectable stuff, and then you, you don't have to use your first-round pick on that kind of guy. You can get somebody who can develop and be that kind of first-round type got talent in a year or two years, and you can get them in the third round. Um, the, college, the, the high school catching is a little bit different than that because – you look, you look around the big leagues. Who are the high school catchers? So that, well, that's funny. The part Devin Mizorocco. He's not Tucker right now. Barnhart, is it's, it? it's Tucker Barnhart. It's Austin Hedges. The two first-round high school catchers. Of the, of the 40 most-used catchers in the big leagues right now, two were high school first-rounders. They are Jeff Mathis and Travis Darno. You look, no exceptions. Who are the best catchers in baseball? It is college guys and guys from outside the continental U.S. And I say it that way because the Puerto Rico guys were technically drafted. Yadier Molina, Martin Maldonado. So they're technically drafted, but 
high school continental U.S. catchers, it's at a point where you actually look at what do catchers look like in the big leagues where you say, just don't do it. Just, and even some of the ones who worked out, JT Real Muto, he wasn't a catcher in high school. Mm -hmm. Tony Walters wasn't a catcher in high school. I mean, the number of guys who actually played catcher in high school, the 40 most used catchers in the big leagues, seven of them were high schoolers, and most of them, I mean, Austin Hedges is the best, but even he, has, he was drafted in 2011, he came up in 2015, but that was more of an injury issue. He's not really a big league catcher until 2017. So if you're a franchise, unless you can wait six, seven years, mm -hmm. just don't do it. I, I feel like we know who, who Austin Hedges is really well. Like, you have Southern California roots. Obviously, you're going to know who Austin Hedges is. He was the man out there for a while. Like, prospect people know who he is because he's been one of the, the most pumped up catching prospects in the minors for a long time. But when you think of, all right, who are the household names who are catchers? No, Austin Hedges isn't on that list. Right. And and when you think of a first-round pick, don't you want a household name? And exactly, and that's where I go back to the first-round high school, continental U.S. high school catchers in the big leagues. It's Travis Darno and Jeff Mathis. Not only not high school, not only not household names, those are second-division guys. It's not even like, oh, they're actually pretty good, but they're underappreciated. It's One's a backup, and the other can't stay healthy and is on his team in fourth place. And, and that's the thing. I, I look at that, that demographic... And like you said, the, the ones who go high, there isn't a good track record of them because there's so many things that, are, that have to change, right? You have to go from catching a, a, some, some mid-80s guys every, like maybe your hardest throwing guy is mid-80s in high school, right? And then you go to pro ball, and the, the softest throwing guy is throwing 93, and he's got a hammer breaking ball that he has no idea how to throw for strikes. So you got to run around for nine innings trying to catch guys like that, and then guess what? you got to go do it tomorrow. And the day after that, and the day after that, and the day after that, and you're gonna do it for six months, and and oh by the way, we want you to hit too and hit for some power. <laughs> so it's it's hard to do. It's a really hard thing and to that, do. And it's a better the better place to learn to do it most effectively is in college. And we see that again. Just the proof is in the pudding. You look at who the guys, the big leaguers are, by and large. You know, aside from the international guys, the guys who are drafted. Continental U.S. It's the college guys, but but I do want to address your point about continental U.S. because right, I think Puerto Rico cause, but because the, a good run. there's there's a couple guys to talk about in Puerto Rico this year who are like and that's that's sort of my thinking on it is like if I'm picking in the second round and I have a chance to go get a really projectable high school right hander and I've got maybe I got a, a good college bat in the first round and I've got so, and so I, I take my projectable high school right hander instead of a high school catcher in the second round right I can get to the whether it's the sixth round or the eleventh round or the twelfth round, I can usually go down to Puerto Rico and, and find a guy who's who can really catch and throw, who yeah, doesn't the fourth does, rounder. I mean, and, and there's a guy Santi Sanchez who's in our rankings, late two hundreds, early three hundreds. Forget exactly where he is. We got him at three sixty eight. Three sixty eight. So Santi Sanchez, I have guys who say, well, he's got a seventy arm. He's getting, most most would put sixty on it, but this guy's got a cannon arm. He's kind of like a, a thicker-bodied guy, like a, a Hudson Bolinsky body comp. Um, so he's, he's a bigger guy. He's going to have to work on his conditioning. Uh, but he, he's pretty fluid and athletic back there. He can really catch the ball. So I can go get that, that guy a little bit later, and I don't have to use a, a high pick on a guy who ultimately probably is, is going to be a backup. Uh, I mean, if we're just talking Best about case it, historical comments. And, and you never, you never want to use that and, uh, and use it against an individual. If there was a catcher who showed up with – 70 tools across the board, 
yeah, I don't care about the demographics if there's 70 tools across the board. And he's got great track record and all that. You, you wouldn't use demographics against him in that case. But most of the time, broad strokes thinking, you're going to want to look at the history of that and see who's done it. And the reality is that most of them haven't made it or haven't lived up to the expectations that a first-round pick carries. No question about it. On that note, I think uh, to about wrap it up, we've got a lot more draft coverage coming up here. We've got State List about to hit the web uh, later on this week. And then next week, boys, Monday, first round, it's already here. Yeah, I mean, we're we're really close. And I think, uh, you know... I, Hudson's going to sleep for three weeks straight after this, by the way, no. folks. So if you don't hear from him for a while after the we're draft concludes... straight down to Florida, start up the next year's cycle. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's an exciting time. And I, I, I think that... I, I would be remiss if I didn't, uh, you know, give you guys a thanks here and on on the podcast. I think that you guys have done fantastic work. Um, I would also add in John Manuel and JJ Cooper. Their reporting on the draft has been extensive and thorough and greatly appreciated. Um, it was a team effort when we got here, and uh, the five hundred's done. Yep. Well, be sure to base, pick baseball that out. America isn't isn't basic. We're we're not stopping at five hundred. We're, we're going to have another probably five or 600 players ranked on our state list. Right now we're close to 1,000 with the state list players we have added, and that should be over 1,000 by the end of the day today. So. Yeah, and we're going to have – we're not going to have – we're not going to give you 200 words on the 197th best prospect in Florida, <laughs> but we're going to give you a couple lines. Um, you should be able to know generally who these guys are. So there's plenty of content coming. It's a fantastic time to subscribe to Baseball America. You can go to baseballamerica.com slash store. get access to all our top 500 reports, all our bonus reports on every single player, potentially. Not, not necessarily every player, but we're, my goal at Baseball America is to know who everyone drafted is and so that you, our readers, can know who everyone drafted is and know who they are and why they got drafted. So we're not perfect, but we're, we're trying to get an inch closer to perfect every day. And I think it's a great time to subscribe to BA. It's a game of inches, speaking of cliches. Yeah. Here we go. <laughs> of course. All right, well, that'll do it. Uh, folks, for Carlos Colazo and Hudson Blinsky, I'm Kyle Glazer. Thank you for tuning in today. Today's podcast was sponsored by Baseballism. Visit Baseballism.com for the best apparel in baseball. Enter the code BA2017 to receive free shipping on your next order. Thanks for tuning in, folks. We'll see you soon.